Welcome to Redefining Medicine, an intimate and personalized program that illustrates a different side of the practice of medicine. Our in-depth conversations will focus on mentors and motivators who are consistently reshaping, redefining, and rediscovering the field of medical healthcare. I am excited to welcome Dr. Dorothy Merritt, board-certified clinician in internal medicine, renowned expert in integrative health, and a pioneer and trailblazer in environmental medicine. Dr. Dorothy Merritt, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it was last minute, so I appreciate you giving us some time. It's a pleasure. Words that have been used to describe you are trailblazer and pioneer. That's true. So we'll get to that momentarily. <laughs> I just would love to find out about your background and what initially inspired you to go into medicine and then ultimately transition over to integrative medicine. Well, I'm not sure what got me into medicine, but my mom was a social worker and my dad was a salesman, so now I look at myself as selling health. <laughs> so that's probably how I ended up there. I couldn't decide whether I wanted to be a PhD or a MD and MD one out. And... Um, and then I ended up in Texas because my husband had a job here already and at Baylor College of Medicine and trained. And then I was going to go into either a specialty or out in primary care, someplace that didn't have a lot of doctors because I, I like challenges. And so I ended up in a little community um, in Galveston County called Texas City and Dickinson. Those were the two big cities down there. And um, I started practicing medicine night and day, 24 hours a day, uh, seeing all forms of uh, pathology and loving it until about the second or third year. And then when you go out seven days a week and go to the hospital and you're going, why are all these people still having MIs? And why are they having this cancer? And why are they having all these you know, bronchitis and medical and lupus is big down there, very underdiagnosed. There hadn't been an internist there for a while. And there was all this autoimmune disease. And it was just so, why does everybody have this? Uh, why do they have to have it at 8 o'clock at night and midnight? And, <laughs> you know, why, how can we stop this? And so then I, I got involved in a couple of things. One, the oncologist in the area uh, transferred out. And um, I got to um, see the cancer community through um, the medical director of hospice. And at the same time, there were a bunch of nursing home cases down there and all the people that were taking care of them didn't want to take care of them anymore. So I ended up getting all these patients and trying to figure out what to do with end stage disease. And, um, and then I got um, on the public board of health and to try and figure out the epidemiology of what was going on in this county and what could we do to change it. And so I became a public health person even though I was doing primary care and um, and, and, that's pr and then I got on, it was about the time when they were doing quality things at the hospital and trying to save money and get better outcomes. So all this was my early career. And um, I definitely wanted to get into prevention because after a few years of this, it was like, oh my gosh, we don't want this. And um, I ended up doing a series of assays for a company called Spectracell. And they were um, an intracellular nutrient company. And I was like, oh, I don't know how I'd ever use this, but they needed this stuff done in Galveston County for some norms. And so we did all that. And then I was like, well, maybe I can take some of my mystery patients who nobody can cure. And um, maybe I can see, see if it points me some direction. Well, 200 um, cases later, I published some stuff on it because it was just absolutely amazing. There were people who were better in a week, people who were better in a month, and most people 
were off half their meds. They quit coming in with bronchitis. They, my hospital rate went from 30 a month of admissions to three. Wow. And then the phone calls started coming from managed care. And that was when <laughs> it was like, we want to buy your disease management program. And I'm like, what is a disease management program? And I try and tell them, well, I did this and this, and I started these two nutrients, and voila, and they hung up the phone. I mean, a few of them had me come and talk to them. they heard the word them. nutrient. Yeah, well, they were like, vitamins? Yeah, right, okay, bye. <laughs> and, uh, but it was the NAC or N-acetylcysteine plus a super mega vitamin that had all the things in it that Spectrosol measured, and it was just some over-the-counter thing available at your local uh, mall. And it wasn't, you know, I didn't know any better than that. I don't know much better now what to do, but um, at the time it was very simple. Take two of these and two of these a day, and, and let's see what happens. And I did it all across the board. Uh, my cost of care went down to about 50 to 75 percent of everybody else's mm. and uh, so I knew I was on to something. N then I knew what a disease management program was and I wish I had sold it <laughs> exactly. to Exactly, and it was a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I knew it impacted the public health of my group of patients. In my hospice patients, I put everybody on a little over-the-counter vitamin and NAC and at the time, the average length of stay or life on a hospice patient was like three to four days. And after I started that, the immediate, the same month, it went up to 10 days. Hmm. Just, and people didn't require all the stomach medicines. And, and then I knew I was onto something. There's something here that I don't know all the things. I started collecting data on NAC because I thought that was the main thing. And um, at the time, there were 200 articles. And after I had, um, about 10 years later, after I had obsessively collected like 4,000 articles on NAC and the glutathione thing, I finally just stopped the obsession, threw it away, and said, I know people are finally onto right. it, so it's, I don't have to keep collecting this stuff and proving it. But um, yeah, it was very interesting. And one of those articles on NAC was, um, an article that I, it flipped me over to uh, a metals thing that was published on the um, ACAM, which is the chelators website, right? You know, and I didn't know anything except I had just gotten out of Baylor and I knew chelation was fraud and abuse and it didn't work and, you know, but then I was sitting there looking at 22 pages of bibliography and 20 pages of legal bibliography, which had happened to all these people. And I'm like, oh man, I don't know what this is, but it must be something. And then I just, it evolved and there wasn't any problem with NAC and vitamins, so I continued that, but then I went and got trained in chelation. And then I had a little back room that we quietly and very secretly chelated people. I mean, it was legal, but you know, I wasn't about to advertise I was doing it, but I had all these people who wanted to do it because it was very hard to find anybody in the area. They had to drive, you know. So it was word of mouth that they were coming Word to? of mouth, strictly Not word of mouth. Not referrals from other physicians. Oh, never referrals <laughs> okay. from other physicians. Even now that's hard. Um, but anyway, so after the trials and tribulations of going through that and seeing that people pinked up after, you know, 10 treatments and they could walk across a room that they couldn't even walk on before, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the next generation of my, you know, first it was the nutrients, then it was chelation. And so I was at my second training thing on chelation and I met Lynn, Dr. Lynn Patrick that you interviewed earlier. And she and uh, Walter Crinian, who was the head of um, environmental medicine at one of the in deep colleges for years, um, I, I met them and, and Lynn and I had compared notes. I showed Lynn all these heavy metal um, history and physicals that I'd come up for the top four. And she was just like, oh my God, we gotta, you gotta come to Walter's uh, six month training. And that was the most intense post uh, training, um, training that I've had. 
and it was six months of pure environmental medicine and how it applies to health and all the proof, and the proof is all there. And then you take a place like Texas City that I live, or Galveston County, which that whole Houston-Galveston complex is petrochemical, huge solvent-based, huge metal-based. Well, of course, you give them NAC and you give chelate out the metals that they got from the 1950s to 1980s from living in a world where we had lead in our gas. gas. Yeah, and then all the other metals too, smoking you know, gives you cadmium, but lead is the elephant in the room. Well, so now that I have those three things that I do and you know, the chelation, put people on the vitamins, and I still have a primary care insurance-based practice that is primarily blue collar, and so I don't have to be a special you know, functional medicine person that only you know, people of a higher income can afford. NAC is cheap, you know, vitamins are cheap. So it's just a matter of how motivated they are to health and uh, we can uh, get most people turned around. So what happens when you are seeing your primary care patient and they're not feeling well and all of a sudden you realize that, oh, I think that they have some toxicity based on whether it's lead or what have you in their body. So how do you transition them over <laughs> to, I mean, I. Well, yeah. the way I do it is okay. um, I will do some standard mm -hmm. blood tests and, and autoimmune or whatever tests. I always throw in a blood lead level because it's cheap, okay? And I always have um, samples of a couple medical foods around that have the NAC and the methylated Bs, which 60% of the population needs. And actually, I did a study and 90% of an internal medicine population needs them. And so I have the free little sample I give them, and then I ask them if they take a vitamin, and if not, I tell them to pick one up up front or pick whatever they want, but the one I really want them to pick is up front. It's cheap and easy. And, um, and then I say, we'll go over your labs, and we'll see how you feel when you get back. Well, that's the first, you know, here's something free. Get this if you can, and I'm going to order all the standard tests. So, you know, I don't look too weird <laughs> to them at that point. And then when they come back, and then I give them information. And this conference today has been very helpful because um, there's a lot of things I'm going to put in my little handout that I'm going to give them because, you know, we address the gut, but, you know, we don't order $1,000 worth of tests on the gut, but we address the gut and get them on a probiotic. We address vitamin deficiencies. We, we address... Um, too much of certain things in your body, which this combination will take out. And, you know, we just try and stay, we try and look standard, but do all the advanced um, things. And it, it, when people come, come back, I'd say 80% of them feel much, much better and can tell a big difference. So now they're willing to listen to the rest of what you have to say. Now, I read a statistic, and I, I don't, please correct me if I'm wrong, and if you could share some, enlighten us on... Uh, on what this actually means, but that 20% of those that are diagnosed with a cardiovascular disease are actually through genetics, and 80% is through the environment? It's based on toxicity? It's called environmental cardiology now, and what we know is diesel fumes, which are, they call them 2.5 micron particles, but you can get 2.5 micron particles cooking food at home when it's burning off old food on your grill or on your countertop. So when you cook, always you know leave the, the fan on. Mm -hmm. I, this is a new fact mm -hmm. that I learned. But anyway, so you've got those. You've got um, the solvents. You know, um, you go to a place like Houston, they're blowing benzene and toluene and ethyl benzene and all these you know chemicals in the air. 
and um, we know that metals, um, four, they just did a 347,000 person, uh, the latest thing from um, in Haines, meta-analysis of all the metal studies where there weren't duplicated patients, and um, it's a, there's no doubt that arsenic and lead and cadmium and copper have one to two times the amount of cardiovascular disease. We know the 2.5 micron um, particles have close to that. So all of them have somewhere between one and a half and two times the disease. And then this is what I learned uh, this weekend and some of the stuff I was preparing for Walter's um, lecture was that if you prenatally expose people and then you look at their, uh, and, you, and those prenates absorb, like say, cigarette smoke. Then you do allergen testing on them. They have sometimes up to 16 times the response because their, their um, immune cells or their T cells are already presensitized. And so now when they run into antigen one, two, or three, let's say in this case ragweed, they react 16 times more. That's why places um, that have more diesel, have more um, toluene in the air, have more, you know, or people who, like say nail painters, people who do mm -hmm. your nails, they're dealing with toluene all day long. They get more colds, they get more asthma, they get more uh, everything. And so it's all pretty much proven, but it's called environmental cardiology now. And um, there's definitely, and what's interesting is that sometimes you can measure the thickness of the lining of your um, blood vessels uh, called the endothelium. Uh, you can do a test called IMT and you can see how thick it is, like arsenic makes it thicker, lead makes it thicker, we know that. But some of these environmental pollutants don't. So now we're sitting there looking at an IMT going, oh, you're fine, your IMT is fine, you don't have any coronary vascular disease and they can blow out a heart attack the next day because oh the, um, the solvents and things like that don't necessarily increase the IMT. So your patients today who are, some might be asymptomatic, some might have show some sort of symptoms, what percentage of your patients or what percentage of the population for that matter, if you tested them, would show a toxic level of lead in their body? Well, you gotta be careful with that toxic okay. definition. We because, show lead in their body. <laughs> oh, almost all of them. I mean, there's very mm -hmm. few, unless they've been treated or they're taking some of these things. Okay. The average lead level in the United States now is one. If you're closer to the ground, like your kid, or you work in industry, you might be up to it too. But that already puts you at a risk group that makes you almost double your cardiovascular. Wow. They even did a study um, on non-cardiovascular young adults, which they de defined as like 18 to 39. And they looked at the amount of uh, mood disorders they had. And this Just was an- go to my house and do a test there. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so what they found was with levels as low as 0.7, you had eight times more ADD, depression, anxiety, and mood disorders at a level of 0.7. And you gotta realize that lead is what they call an NOEL or NOEL toxin. There's no observable environmental level that doesn't cause a problem. So Frightening situation. Frightening situation, mm -hmm. but luckily, luckily, if you were born after 1980, you're in luck. If you didn't live in a lead house or you, know, you don't work in a lead industry, um, you're probably gonna die of something else other than you know lead-induced heart disease. Well, thank you for the great news. Something <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> else to look forward to. <laughs> because I was born long before 1980. Um, okay, so what, 
What um, protocols do you use to correct deficiencies or toxicity in the body? What well, do you the, so I, again, I, I said there. In addition to chelation therapy. Oh, okay, so in addition to when okay. I look at my adult population, I start with let's do stuff easy, and we know all the stuff is here. So everybody takes NAC twice a day. And um, if they drink alcohol, when they go out and drink, and this was actually in Playboy 20 years ago, you can, <laughs> you can take uh, one data, NAC. That's not where you found the data, though, right? Or you <laughs> it was one of the first 200 <laughs> articles I could find. No, now we know it. But if you take an NAC for every drink you take, when you're drinking, it reverses it from going to formaldehyde and takes it, and you don't get a morning after headache, and it takes it out in your urine. So if you're going to drink, or you're exposed to nail polish, or you have a huge solvent, whatever, take an AC a lot more, and you can take up to three or four or five, I mean, you can actually take up to 40 without hurting your liver, they've shown. So NAC is the basic, and then I use a, um, an ultra, I'll just call it an ultra nutrient that has, super, has the highest amount of antioxidants, and it also has some uh, curcumin, ginger, milk thistle, and a couple other little things, alpha lipoic and CoQ, plus the, all the minerals, and it has all the activated, um, already methylated Bs. So it has all the things I know genetically we're missing. It has the highest level antioxidants, so I won't get in trouble with toxicity of good things. And I use that in NAC, and that's my standard for everybody. You've thrown out some of these acronyms and whatnot. What does NAC stand for? NAC is an amino acid, N-acetylcysteine. And we've used it in medicine for 50 years by itself for bronchitis, for liver disease. If somebody overdoses on Tylenol, then they come to the ER and they stick a tube down their stomach and they pour liquid NAC. Um, even in cardiology, they came out with a, an IV NAC that they can give people before a cardiac cath to preserve their kidneys. Because if you take NAC, you don't, your kidneys don't fail when you get die. One dose of that would do that. Yeah, they do wow. that right Amazing. before. And so I just okay. had to load people up the day before on oral. And, you know, but I mean, some places that, that was the big thing in cardiology. So NAC uh, increases your glutathione. It helps you detox things. It helps preserve things. It is your major cellular antioxidant inside and outside the cell. So we should just be taking that prophylactically. Right. There's about 5% of the people who cannot do that because they have a genetic um, SNP, they call it, or a mutation where, they, where the NAC turns into ammonia. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, they, get, they feel like they have brain fog and they feel terrible. But you know those people because they feel good for three days while the glutathione is going up and then once the glutathione gets up too high, they can't excrete it and then they feel brain foggy and horrible. So other than that three to five percent of people, it is the best thing you can take in today's, today's America. <laughs> and for those that are listening or watching that are um, unfamiliar with chelation therapy, can you describe what that is? Yeah, chelation therapy is, um, well actually during the uh, World War One, Germany could not get their uh, stuff for clothes dyeing because they wanted to chelate out the calcium out of clothes dye. So they developed their own chelator and it turned out to be something we call EDTA because the, the, the word is like this long. But anyway, um, so what this thing is, it chelates calcium, it chelates lead, it chelates cadmium, it chelates a lot of different things. And so because it was a calcium chelator and back in the 40s and 50s all we knew, our, our knowledge of cardiology was well, there's a lot of calcium in these old clogged up arteries, but we don't know why. And we don't know 
how it got there, and we don't, but we know this stuff takes calcium out, maybe it'll help. So it's one of those things that was kind of, it sounded good, and EDTA worked, but it didn't work in the mechanism that they thought. But anyway, they, it became highly studied, and then during a, um, um, a couple of trials up in Detroit of these terribly lead-toxic people, they were chelated. And their angina went away, and their rheumatoid went away, and all these miracle things happened. And then people started publishing on EDTA. And so anyway, so EDTA is just a chemical. They put a little bit in an IV. They put a few vitamins in there with it, and some magnesium, and you know, just a few little things. And they run it in over three hours. And that's the ACAM protocol. That's the proper protocol. In fact, that's what we used in the trial to assess chelation therapy. And um, they sit there for two and a half, three hours and get their little IV and go home. How often? Well, in the old days, people do it every day. They do it every other day. People got depleted. I mean, you know, nobody knew what to do. In the trials, well, I recommend once a week. And if you're older or you have bad kidneys, then every two weeks. But um, you can do it as much as every other day. It's just harder on the body to do it that way. So if I have somebody who has unstable angina, their leg's about to fall off, they've got gangrene starting or something like that, that I need, I'll do it every other day. I haven't had that in a long time though, and to, to have to do that. And, um, but they did um, 55,000 total drips in, in the TAC trial, or the T, um, trial to assess chelation therapy that the NIH sponsored, and it was safe. And in fact, there, there, were, there was no increased um, problem over placebo on the majority of things. I mean, there weren't any increased deaths. In fact, there were less deaths. It was a very um, interesting study in that there were, the people that dropped out were the people that were in the placebo group, not in the treatment group, because the placebo group, most of those people had had an event, and they were like, why am I coming here every month or every week and getting stuck when I'm probably not even getting the real thing because I had a heart attack or whatever, and so they would drop out, and that's very unusual for a study. So you had referred to um, what you were able to surmise and identify in your local area of Texas City and Galveston um, in regard to your, you know, surmising that there was some sort of lead toxicity in that area. What today would be some of the conditions associated, uh, just general public all over the country, what would be some of the conditions associated with possible lead Well, basically... Toxicity? Basically. And symptoms. Sure. So there's this old checklist of 30 symptoms that some guy back in the 70s used in some Colorado clinic. I don't even know who it was or what it was, but, you know, it's a checklist. And so when I chelate people, I have them fill this checklist off. And then after I've done 10 or, 10 or 15, I have them fill it off again. So I'm always looking for a way to objectifying the symptoms. A lot of the symptoms are neurological or um, pain. Um, I would say those are the ones that people check off the most, depression, things like that. But the conditions that they have are mostly vascular. And in fact, that latest study that looked at the NHANES data of all these people that had the excessive lead, what it showed was 90% of it, 95% of it is cardiovascular, vascular, ischemic, something to do with the vascular system. I mean, the first symptom is hypertension. I mean, the first condition is hypertension. And they actually showed that, you know, we, when I trained, it was 99% of people who have hypertension is idiopathic, which means we don't know. Now, what they showed in like 2003, and it was another NHANES study, 
what they showed was that starting at age 40, just normal people start turning their bones over four to 10 times faster than they did before. And that releases the lead that's in their bones from all those years of breathing lead in the air, which was tremendously high. And they, that 90, that 99% that idiopathic was really due to lead. And that was the most common cause from age 40 to 62 of hypertension. It isn't some weird secondary reason that we all work up. It's lead. And so, you know what the most common thing you can do is stop the turnover. Make sure you have vitamin D. Make sure you take calcium. Uh, avoid. Don't sit and scrape down your own old pre-1970s house and paint. Have somebody else do that. And... Um, just um, knock it down altogether. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get rid of this asbestos too, but yeah. Wow. So I'm just thinking about, you know, you taking that uh, first course in environmental medicine. So I'm thinking about going home and literally just turning your entire home into a green zone because of everything that you learned. I mean, how could that? Well, <laughs> you know how imagine. when you're so overwhelmed, you just can't move, you can't, I didn't know what to eat. Right. I didn't know what to breathe. <laughs> I didn't know what to take. I just thought, we're screwed. There's nothing we can right. do. I mean, because there's just so much, it's so overwhelming. How can we allow this? Well, I was really proud of the EPA. I mean, it has progressed so well. But it is so far yet to go. Well, it was getting there. I mean, um, until now we're, we've got a big stop on it. It really concerns me because we are dumping 80,000 chemicals have been dumped into our environment and there's two or 3,000 a year we were just getting to the point where we were in making people responsible for dumping all this stuff and I'm just afraid that it has just twisted back and and um, it, it's funny how you tie lead into the EPA do you know the original story of how the EPA came about I do not well there's this guy Claire Patterson in um, uh, and he was a PhD at University of Chicago he was from Iowa and in, in a lot of the old reports, they didn't know if it was a woman or a man because of Claire, you know. But anyway, this is a really cool guy. And, and so he kept working on um, lead uh, or lead, the uranium um, degenerates into lead or lead degenerates into uranium. I think it's uranium degenerates into lead. Okay. And so that's how they age the earth and the solar system and all these other things. And, and usually they use carbon dating. So he was using lead to try and proved well and so he kept getting these numbers that were double like the solar system was double the age that every other mechanism had set then he went and started taking samples and realized the water was contaminated the pipes to his lab were contaminated he went to mountaintops the mountaintops were contaminated and then he realized it was the lead from gas and that's also at the time we had nitric oxide and sulfur and we had uh, I think it was called acid rain and all these things you never hear of anymore well so because of his getting involved in all this he had the he developed the first clean room and so that he replaced all the pipes everything was lead free everything was clean the air was filtered and so he could do his experiments well anyway so he was too um, annoying to people but his group started forming the EPA and the Clean Water Act and the um, Clean Air Act and that's why we got rid of 90 percent or 95 percent of all those things in the environment and if you look at pictures of then and now, it's just a totally different um, environment. So they have been slow, but they've made major changes over the last 30 years, but it was due to this guy. 
And he died of a, I mean, an <laughs> ethyl co company kept coming after him. They kept offering UC Davis to replace his chair. You know, they'd pay anything to get rid of this guy, right? And, um, and UC Davis, in, in their goodness, did not. And, um, and he, but he ended up dying of an asthma attack from, from pollution in California. So that, that's his story. <laughs> Sad ending. <laughs> yeah, but a neat man. Wow. Yeah. So let's go back to um, the descriptions that have been used for you. Oh, no. <laughs> you, you've only heard the nice ones. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure that uh, some of your... Um, detractors? Sure, yeah, detractors <laughs> might have a few other things yeah. to say, but you'll be the last one standing. Right. When they're dead of some sort of, of poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so why do you think, Dr. Patrick especially, and here you train together um, at that... Um, in that class. Mm -hmm. So, you know, tell me why, I mean, I've done the research so I know, but I want you to share in your own words why they use the words trailblazer and pioneer. And I mean, because it's not without its struggle, it was not without its stress. I can put two to two and get eight, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, or, or I can go from A to Z very quickly. I mean, I see a pattern, I see a pattern, and boom, I can get to Z. And I've just always been that way. And so, and I had no fear. At one point, I never feared medical boards or other doctors or other people because I was like, oh my God, my patients love me. I'm getting them from there to there. Right. And so I, I guess I'm a trailblazer. Part of it too is, you know, that uh, Myers-Briggs uh, personality yeah. type. I, um, I'm a ENTP and they're described as um, the flash flood that goes down the mountain, carves the trail. Mm -hmm. Well, that's me because I mean, I really relate to that. But um, I, it's just the per personality I was born or developed, and, and then I, I just thought I had a mission to do this. I mean, I thought that was what I was supposed to do as a physician. So for physicians out there that are crossing over to the other side, you know, from uh, being in the traditional setting and um, are listening to your words of, wisdom and realizing that, you know, what you have to say and everything that you've written about and people have spoken about in terms of your work, if they're, you know, teetering with the idea of, of coming over to practice integrative medicine, what words of wisdom because of your, both from your personality as well as your history, uh, what words of wisdom could you offer them? Well, first of all, you've got to believe what's true. We're here to practice medicine and be healers not work for big pharma and i'm not against big pharma but big pharma is pretty much against integrative medicine mm -hmm. so i think you need to align with a very strong integrative medicine group like a4m mmi i mean because these people have the power and clout and they have board certification and they have cme and they have all these different things that give you some protection and unlike me who thought, well, I'm gonna tell everybody in the world about these findings because they, they wanna know, you never know what person is sitting out there in another state, like and is a quack buster that's gonna turn you in because you wrote an article about Galveston County and you know, lead or something crazy you know, that is interpreted by the state board as advertising. So keep it within your group, keep it within your patients because your best your best um, advertising and it goes among the patients you're taking care of. And especially if you're in a primary care situation and you control the patients and you're not waiting for someone to refer to you, 
always be in that situation and then figure out how to do it so that it doesn't cost your patients an arm and a leg. I mean, I'm worth a lot more than I charge, but I mean, as far as dollars and cents to their, their cost, but after doing this for 30 years, I wouldn't do anything else. I love what I do and, and it's just not worth um, fighting the idiots out there. You have enough of them to fight your own group. And so don't sit yourself, like I've probably had my head chopped off 20 times. If you don't want your head chopped off, keep it down, but that doesn't mean you can't write stuff down for patients and, and, and learn all this stuff and teach it to them. So it just depends on how comfortable you are and how scared you are about things. Because all this stuff is published now. This isn't 30 years ago. These all have good published data and we have a national trial on chelation that's getting replicated right now. So I'm not, nobody's bothering me about chelation now. And so, but you know, every time I'd advertise before, they'd come after me. Somebody would come after me, not my patients and not Galveston County be some guy in another state that was a quack buster. And you know, that gets costly after a while to- Of course. So stay as close to the edge as you can and, 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 and don't advertise. It's just not worth it. There's always some idiot out there and, and advertise among your patients. That's your best source. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Merritt. Thank you. It was a pleasure you. to have you.